Everybody has one. All right, we're going to um, come back to Revelation again. So if you open your Bibles to Revelation 22, the last chapter. God willing, we'll begin our next book, the book of Matthew, uh, in, in about a month. So look forward to that. In a 2020 poll of a thousand evangelical pastors, only 20, or sorry, 50% believed that Jesus will return in their lifetime. In a recent Pew Research survey, only 41% of evangelical Christians who took the survey believed that Jesus will return in their lifetime. And in a similar Christianity, Today, poll, only 33% of evangelicals believed that Jesus will return in their lifetime. I understand uh, those statistics in the sense that if we took a poll in here, uh, similar to that, some of you would say, well, you know, it's not my place to set dates. How can I say for sure that Jesus will return in my lifetime? And yet, if you answer the question as no, you really are setting a date, aren't you? So maybe it's not a good question to begin with at all. Maybe a better question is this. Do you believe that he may return in your lifetime? In that case, what would you say? Well, you know, I hope that your response would not be, well, it couldn't happen in my lifetime. I mean, uh, yes, he's going to return but it's highly unlikely that it's going to happen in my lifetime. Instead, I do hope that our time together in Revelation, and especially uh, as we have looked over these last two chapters, you really have your expectation uh, increased uh, with the possibility of Jesus' return at any time. It certainly has for me, and my sure hope is that Jesus is coming. And it really could be today. I want to return to Revelation 22 this morning. We're going to read from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. We're not going to finish the book today. Uh, there's one more message after this one to wrap things up. And although I do believe that the Lord could return in my lifetime, uh, I doubt that I'll ever preach through Revelation again like this. Uh, so this series of 90 messages, it has been, it will be 90 uh, when we get to the end. Uh, it's been a real blessing to me, and I do want to thank the Lord uh, publicly for the opportunity uh, of having a congregation like yourselves, who have patiently given me the opportunity to preach through uh, this amazing prophecy. Uh, it is a challenge, uh, but it's been a great blessing as well. Well, verse 12 says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city. 
but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. In other words, it's, it's for their benefit. Uh, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bride of morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Beginning with verse 6 in this chapter and running down to verse 20, about 80% of the verses there contain a reference to the words of the prophecy of this book, or the things written in this book. In other words, the last section of Revelation ends by saying quite a few things about the book itself. The primary speaker in this chapter, especially beginning in verse 12, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the book opened by telling us that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's it's about Jesus Christ. It's to Jesus Christ, uh, which God gave him to show to his servants things which must shortly take place. So it's a revelation uh, given, you remember, by the Father to the Son so that he could show it to the churches. And then the book ends with him continually referring back to the words of this book that he just gave to his servants through the pen of John. So what we have here, starting in verse 12 then, are the last words of Jesus Christ to us. These are his final statements. To this point in time, there has been nothing else that he has said to us. Of course, the last words of an individual are precious. Uh, when my first wife was dying at home, I vividly recall her last words to me. Uh, those words are precious. Uh, when my father died five years ago, I remember his last words, at least to me. And again, I'm sure he said other things to other family members after that, but I do remember his last words to me. But Jesus Christ has said nothing else to us since this last section that we just read. So with that in mind, I want to preach to you this morning on the subject of Christ's last words. It's probably, I think, the best theme for what we have here. Now, As we read those verses, it may have seemed to you that 
there's not a lot of connection between some of the sayings, some of the verses. In other words, they kind of appear to be somewhat disconnected. I kind of found that uh, as I was going through it. Maybe that's the case for you. And although I'm not fully satisfied that I do understand the whole structure, uh, the flow of thought here, I do think it's possible to understand some of it. And as we go along, I'm going to attempt to explain why certain statements follow other statements. I'm going to try and connect the dots for us here, uh, because these last words, in the mind of the Lord, surely do have a progression to them. I mean, he wasn't just throwing out disconnected statements to us. So here are the last words, the last words of Jesus Christ that he left with the church. First of all, let's look at verse 12. What is the character of those statements? What is the nature of those statements in that verse? Look at them. Here's the first one. He says, I am coming quickly. And here's the second one. My reward is with me. In their character, what do we call those? We call them promises. So let's start by saying that his last words begin by making certain promises to us. First promise, of course, was said back in verse 7, and then again in verse 20. It is the promise of his soon coming. He promises to come back for us. So think of the context surrounding that promise. Think of the tribulation holocaust to come, and those events that we spent many messages studying, the darkness, the terror of those days. And even if we become the final generation of believers who are raptured before the tribulation, we will not escape unscathed. You remember that in the Olivet Discourse, the Lord uh, described days that will be filled with war and constant reports of war and trouble of all kinds. And then he said, uh, but this is the beginning of birth pangs. When you study the Olivet Discourse, and you compare it to the events in Revelation, you realize that he was referring there to events in Matthew that actually precede the beginning of the tribulation. So if we were in the final generation, we would not escape those beginning of birth pangs, unscathed. It will affect us. But in that cauldron, and even in the midst of what we experience today as believers living in a wicked world, Think of the comfort of those last words. I am coming, and I am coming quickly. Maybe you recall from a few sermons ago that we looked at the whole issue of how uh, that can be true when it's been nearly 2,000 years since those words were given. Well, without recovering all of that material, I just want to encourage you to adopt God's viewpoint about this. And in order to see that, you need to get above and look at all of human history through the eyes of God. I mean, He sees it all from beginning to end. He sees the entirety of events that are past, present, and future. He sees it as one unbroken timeline. So get up above it like you're looking down at a parade from a helicopter where you can see the whole thing from beginning to end as one unbroken continuum. And a number of floats 
have already gone by, and now you're waiting for the last one. And somebody says to you, well, is it coming soon? And you say, yes, well, it's the next one. It's the very next event on God's calendar. Is it far off? No, it's, it comes very quickly. It's right after the event that just went by. That is divine viewpoint. That's precisely why Scripture says that the judge is where? He's right at the door. He can burst into the human scene at any moment. Jesus said, I will come quickly. And when he comes, it's going to affect every human being. That second promise is this. My reward is with me. But look at how it's put here. To give to everyone according to his work. Or according to what he has done. In other words, the coming of the Lord Jesus will not be like the coming of the Prince and Princess of Wales to Australia in 2023. They were last here in 2014, and I don't even remember it, because it had absolutely no effect on me. Even though William is the next in line uh, to the throne when he flies into the Antipodes and he arrives in our wonderful city this year, it's going to have zero effect on me. I probably won't even know about it until I read it when he lands. When the Lord comes, his reward is with him. And he will give to every person according to what they have done in their lifetime. And I want you to note that the word for reward in this passage is broad enough to encompass what we would also call retribution. In other words, don't think of this as only a positive reward for those who have done good. You want to think of this in terms of both reward and retribution to everyone according to what they have done. So he is coming for the church, right? And then you have the events in the tribulation when millions of people will be snatched up into eternity. And probably parallel to that is the Bema seat, the believers going on in heaven. And at the end, you have the second coming of Jesus Christ to rule the earth and the millennial kingdom. And that's followed then by the great white throne judgment. So with all of that in mind, I would say that this is probably speaking in more general terms, and it's compressing all rewards and retributions during that entire time into one statement when he says, I am coming, and then all things are going to be made right, because I will give a just reward. I will give a just repayment for everyone according to their works. Now we have passages in Scripture that describe those events. The first one is to Christians in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11. It says there that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is known as the Bema of Christ. The Bema was a raised platform in the ancient world from which a city official gave his verdict in judgment. Raised platform, like this one right here. So we must all appear before the Bema so that each one may give an account for the things done in our bodies according to whether they've been good or bad. 
You know, there is a legitimate concern among some conservative evangelicals that professing believers today are living more and more as if there really is going to be no accounting for their behavior. Maybe you've noticed this. In other words, what we do or don't do as Christians is irrelevant. Because being a Christian is not about what you do, but it's about what you believe and whether or not you know, you exercise tolerance towards other views and religions, and, you know, that's about it. That's why there's very little material on the topic of the Bema, and what you find out there is largely ambivalent. I mean, you know, people are not quite sure whether or not Christians will experience anything negative at the Bema. Because the Bible talks about the fact that our sins are forgiven and it's all put behind God's back and we are washed in the blood and God's grace covers it all and so on. That's the emphasis today. But listen, does that really mean that when we stand before the Bema, there will be no negative experience whatsoever? You know, I just can't see how that's going to be the case. When this passage says we must all stand there to give an account for the things done in our body, and then it says whether they be good or whether they be bad. Now, how that reconciles with our sins being washed away and not being remembered anymore against us, well, we're just going to have to wait and see. I don't have a, a good answer for that, but it sounds to me as if you have the same situation that you find with many other theological issues in Scripture, right? You have two statements that appear to contradict one another on their own, and yet both of those statements are true. And the fact is, 1 Corinthians 3 does tell Christians that they will discover one day that some of what they did on earth was wood, hay, and stubble because it's going to be consumed. But then there are other deeds that are represented as gold and silver and precious stones, and, and well, that's going to remain. So these passages, yes, they are a comfort, but at the same time, they caution us to remember that his reward is with him. The other passage that is quite fearful that really is for unbelievers is in Revelation 20.13, when it refers to the great white throne judgment where the dead are judged according to the things that are written in those books, and then they're judged according to their works or their deeds. So, of course, everybody who stands at that judgment is a lost person. Their names are already conspicuously absent from the book of life. However, God is a just God, and I, I do think that there will be you know, some recognition of the fact that even lost people have differed in the degree of their good or bad works on earth. God will evidently take that into account when it comes to the measure of their deeds, and although it won't affect the length of their judgment, that's clearly eternal, it may affect the intensity of that judgment being experienced. There are passages to indicate that. So yes, his reward is with him. Nobody is going to be unaffected. Don't sit here today and think, well, you know, if Jesus Christ really comes, 
like you're talking about, well, I'm not going to be included in that. I've got a life and I'm going to live it and that's not my religion, that's not my beliefs. No, you will not escape unaffected, regardless of what you believe. Because everybody will be repaid according to what he has done. Now, in light of that, why does verse 13 then go on to identify him in the terms that it does? It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Well, Christ's last words contain, first of all, two promises, but then secondly, they contain his identifications. Now, let's spend just a moment looking at those titles, and this really is the only place in Scripture where all of them are used in the same verse. First of all, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and both Alpha and Omega are letters from which language? The Greek language. In the Greek alphabet, the Alpha is the first letter, and the Omega is the last letter. Now, if there's any question in your mind about what he means by using those two letters, look at the next title. Because while Alpha and Omega certainly imply a meaning, the next one makes it explicit. It's the fact that he's the beginning and the end. When it comes to the sequence of these events, he's the beginning and the end, and then he is the first and the last, and again that refers to time. So what is the significance of using these three titles? Well, the title Alpha and Omega is not just used of Jesus Christ in this book. It's used in chapter 1, verse 8, and 21, verse 6, of God the Father. And then it's used of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 8. So think about that for a moment. What would be the significance of a title that is used of God the Father, but then it's also used of Jesus Christ? Got the same thing with the title beginning in the end. That title is used in the previous chapter in verse 6 of God the Father. Well, now it's being used of Jesus Christ. The last title, first and, and uh, last, is only used of Christ in this book, but it is used in the book of Isaiah for Yahweh or Jehovah. I won't take you there, but the, you got the references, I think, in your outline. And the context there is God warning idolatrous people. And he's saying to them there, look, I am the only God. I am the first and the last. I created everything. And I'm I'm telling you, there are certain things that are coming in the future. And they're they're surely going to happen. Because I am the first and I am the last. So he's using the title to reinforce his claim as the one and only true God. In other words, he made it all. Well, that sounds like the beginning to me. And then he's giving certain predictions about events to come. And that sounds like the end to me. And, you know, he's telling these people, I can say this to you because there's no other God. I'm the first and the last. And that title is now picked up in the book of Revelation. And it's used of Jesus himself. Now, if you put all of that together, several facts emerge. Number one, since these terms are used for the Father and the Son, the obvious implication is that Jesus Christ is also very God of very God. 
He is one with the Father. He is co-equal with the Father. The second implication within the context of Revelation is that he was here at the beginning of it all and he will be here at the end of it all. So when he says, I am coming and everybody will be rewarded because I'm bringing it with me, on what basis can he make a claim like that? Well, look at who he is. When the first human being took his first breath, he was there. And when human history has run its entire course and there will never be another baby born, he is there. Now, of course, that also implies the third thing, which is that he has always been there. I mean, he comprehends in himself the entirety of all chronology and all successive events occurring within that chronology. Therefore, he has the authority to say, I will give to everyone according to their works. Someone says, well, how can he do that? How can he know everything about everybody in order to do that and be entirely just? All right, what are his qualifications? Hey, I am the first and I am the last. And he's not just saying, I put it all into motion at the beginning and I'll put a stop to it at the end. He actually is saying, I am the beginning. And I am the consummation. So that should help you understand the sequence of thought there between verses 12 and 13. Now, with that as the platform, there is now a blessing pronounced in the next verse. And then a warning that occurs in verse 15. Let's move on to that. Now again, connect this to the previous statement. He's just said, I'm going to give rewards to everyone according to their works, and I have the qualification to do so because of who I am. All right, what does that actually mean when you consider what he's coming to do? Well, it's twofold. Number one, it's going to be a blessing for some. But number two, it's going to be a fearful warning for others. Okay, what is the blessing? Can there be anything greater than this? a right to the tree of life forever and ever and ever. What about this one? Entrance through those gates. Remember the gates of pearl? Entrance through those gates for access into that city. Those are the blessings. And it says they are meant for those who do his commandments. Verse 14. So that statement identifies these people in terms of their obedience. Now, I want to pause in the message for just a moment. And I want to point something out to you that's going to take us about five minutes to cover. So just hit pause. Some of you have an ESV. Some of you may have an NASV. Some of you may have an NIV. And if you're looking in your version, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. Others of you have a King James Version or an NKJV like I do. And it says, Blessed are those who do his commandments. You see that? How many of you have the first reading? Wash his robes. Aha, I knew it. How many of you have do his commandments? Aha, it's 50-50. Let's have a fight. No, it's not. Uh, This raises the issue of what we call textual variations or textual variants. 
And this was not a minor issue, especially when you have this severe warning in verses 18 and 19 about adding or taking away from the words of this book. So where does that leave us then when we find two different translations in two different versions of the Bible? What's really going on here? And how can we decide on an issue like this? Uh, I want to use this kind of as a little teaching moment, and then I want to settle in on what we're going to do with this particular verse in our Bibles. Why do we even face what are called textual variants? Well, the answer to that really is quite simple. It's because our Bibles are basically translations of manuscripts. A manuscript is a handwritten copy in the original language in which the autograph or the first copy was written. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, there are thousands of manuscripts that verify what the first inspired copy, what we call the autograph, what the first inspired copy ever written actually said. Uh, there are well over 5,000 Greek manuscripts that we know of, and they keep discovering more. Uh, from you know archaeological digs or ancient libraries. And you want to remember, of course, that, that every manuscript was once somebody's Bible. Uh, so they vary in how much each one is being preserved. Uh, a manuscript could be something you know just the size of the palm of my hand. It could be very, very small, and that's all that's left of some guy's Bible. Uh, maybe he lived in the third century in Alexandria, Egypt, and he had a Bible, but all we got left now is just this small part of one page. Uh, think of it this way. I'm sure you have old Bibles lying around the house, and uh, if you regularly use it, then the pages get worn. They get, you know, they get torn, and the spine starts to deteriorate, and the leather starts flaking off a little bit. Maybe your, your toddler got a hold of one. There's crayon on some of the pages, and he started chewing some pages or something. Well, the years go by, and, you know, the thing wears out, and you get other Bibles, but you don't like throwing away the old ones. It just kind of feels wrong. If you're like me, you just can't bring yourself to do it. So you, you put it in a box, you throw it in the shed, and 500 years from now, someone's buried your house in a landfill. And archaeologists are kind of coming along and digging through the area and they unearth your house. And they find your shed. And scattered in the shed are little bits and pieces of your old Bible. All right, well, that's the situation here. You've got manuscripts like that. But then you also have manuscripts that can be beautiful, they can be legible, they can be complete as if they were written yesterday. Maybe the owner never read it. Uh, and so it's still complete and preserved and beautiful. Now, since printing with movable type didn't really come along until the 15th century, until then, if you had a Bible, somebody had to copy it by hand. And so we do have handwritten manuscripts that date centuries before the invention of printing. And then we have other printed copies that go back to the 16th century. Of course, there's a certain amount of subjectivity when you're trying to date, you know, one of these documents. But, uh, you know, textual experts have it really down to a fine art. And uh, they can date these things pretty accurately. And it depends on 
the, the type of writing. It depends on the material that's being used. Uh, it might depend on whether or not they found coins on the same site that have dates or certain pottery types or names that are inscribed and so on. So there really, there really is a fair degree of accuracy when they date manuscripts. Now, most of our New Testament has so much manuscript evidence from such a huge range of time across the centuries that there's no question as to what the original documents said. If you want more information on this, I can recommend a book or two, and I'm sure Pastor Brian can do the same thing. But if you examine the evidence, you'll see that it's only a very small percentage of the New Testament that is even in question. In fact, Westcott and Hort, who produced a very famous Greek text of the New Testament in 1881, said that the percentage of substantial variations in the New Testament amounts to one-tenth of one percent. All right, here in Revelation is one of those readings that's part of that very small percentage. So I'm pointing it out. Now, we can simply ignore it. We could do that. Uh, but now you're sitting there and you're wondering about it. <laughs> because, you know, you've got, a, you've got a New King James and your wife's sitting next to you. She's got an ESV. And when I was reading it, you, your wife leaned over and looked at your Bible. Because her Bible doesn't say that. Right? So, let me offer a very simple way of understanding this. <clears throat> if you have a King James, if you have a New King James Bible... It's based on manuscripts that are closer to our time period. Uh, they come from a later rather than an earlier century. All right? If you have an ESV or an NASV, those translators said, well, you know, we think that the older manuscripts are probably more likely to be the correct wording in most cases because they date closer to the original autographs. So we're going to have a translation that is based on the older manuscripts. Okay? So what you end up with then are two versions with two different readings in some places. That's just the way it is. Now, you can sit there and say, well, I don't like that, and stick your head in the sand like an ostrich and tell everybody, my Bible is the inerrant one. You can do that. People do that. Okay. But what about your wife and the one she's got? Uh, you know, you say, well, she shouldn't have bought that one. I'll give her the right Bible. Well, that's no answer. Okay. And it's not the fault of the translators either. I mean, you know, a lot of people's Bibles just two centuries after Christ evidently had the same reading that's being translated in the ESV. But I do want to give you just a little bit of assurance about this. I don't want to shake anyone's faith here. But <clears throat> number one, as I said a moment ago, this involves a very small part of your New Testament. And number two, if you look at all of the variations and you include them all on one list, and let's just say, all right, I'm going to collect every single one from every single translation. I'm going to put together a Bible that has them all. So if a verse has three readings, I want all of them in the margin. If you did that, let me tell you what would happen. You would have no doctrinal errors in your Bible, and if you did, you would spot them immediately. 
Why? Well, because they clearly contradict the rest of the Bible. Well, there's absolutely no question at all. So right away, you can tell which is the right reading. Well, let's just say you want to go the other way. Let's just say that you're saying to yourself, well, I don't, I don't trust any of those variations. Out they go. Uh, all of them. I want a Bible with no variations underlying at all. And any time I find a new one, we just throw that verse out. All right. Let me tell you what would happen. You would not be missing any doctrinal teaching from the New Testament. Because for every verse that has any question at all, you have other passages of Scripture that are absolutely clear. And no question at all about those readings. I'm saying that to give you a little bit of comfort. And if you have any questions, there is a book called God's Word in Our Hands where they analyze about 25% of the New Testament, and you'll see that what I'm saying is true. But that brings me to this. <clears throat> Let me tell you what I do in a case like this that has two readings. Immediately, I want to know how those readings compare that has no variant on the same topic. That's what I want to know. So let's do that as we get back into the text this morning. Let's just say <clears throat> that the, uh, the King James translators are right. And the reading is, blessed are those who do his commandments. All right. Initially, that bothers me a little bit theologically. Because it seems to suggest that my place in the holy city, my right to the tree of life, is based on what? My works. Doing his commandments. Now, if I was on an island and I'd never seen a Bible and I'm digging in the sand and up comes a manuscript about the size of my palm and it's got these you know, five or six verses on it and I read there that there's going to be some people who get uh, access to the tree of life and some people get to enter the city and blessed are those who keep his commandments. I'm walking away saying to myself, okay, if I want to get into that city, i got to keep his commandments. In other words, if that's all I had... I'm going to have a misunderstanding about salvation. But you see, that's my whole point. That isn't all that we have. We've got a whole New Testament that teaches us what is required to be declared righteous in the sight of God. And that same New Testament clearly tells me, hey, you're not saved by your works. But it also tells me that if I have a genuine saving faith, that is a faith that works. First John says, if you say you have eternal life, you want assurance of salvation, well, everyone who knows God, they're going to keep his commandments. So I realize, in light of the whole teaching of the New Testament, that when you ask if the reading there could be to do his commandments in order to get the blessing, since it's not violating any theological teaching in the New Testament, that actually lines up with some of the warnings that are given to me in the New Testament, I'm okay with that reading. I'm good with that one. However, if the reading is washed his robes, well, that's also in keeping with some of the things that are said in the book of Revelation. For example, in chapter 3, verse 4, <clears throat> to the church at Sardis, the Lord wrote of people there who had dirtied their clothes. And when he spoke to the church at Laodicea, he counseled them to buy uh, white garments from him. 
We're told in Revelation 1.5 that He washed us or freed us from our sins in His own blood. So clearly, there's imagery here of people who are dressed and yet their garments are dirty. And if you want to be in the holy city and if you want rights to the tree of life, you need to let the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse your clothes. So that reading certainly lines up with the whole New Testament as well. So in the end, I would simply say that both of those shoes fit my feet as a student of the New Testament. And they fit me simultaneously. Because I have to be justified by faith alone and washed in the blood of Christ. But if I truly have been cleansed, then the evidence of that will be me keeping His commandments. Not perfectly, of course, but the general direction of my life is in obedience to God. And according to 1 John, His commandments are not grievous to me. They're only grievous if I'm a lost person. If I'm saved, I want to please Him. I'm eager to obey His commandments. So those two shoes, as I said, fit my feet simultaneously in my walk as a Christian down the pathway of life toward my heavenly home. And the blessing is for people like that. On the other hand, There are those who are outside, and you can see the description of these people in verse 15. It says, but outside are dogs. Now, let me just clarify, that's not talking about man's best friend. Sometimes you find a commentator, and they use this to attack our four-footed friends. And they talk about, you know, dogs in the ancient world. They were scavengers, and they were unclean animals, and people didn't like them, and they kicked them around a lot. And thank God in heaven, there are going to be no dogs. That's not what this means. I'm not saying dogs will be in heaven, by the way. I'm just saying that's not what it means. This term is used in the Old and the New Testament as a derogatory term. For example, in Deuteronomy 28.18, it's used of male prostitutes. In Philippians 3.33, it's used of Judaizers who distort the gospel of Christ. So, in other words, it's used, generally speaking, for people who are very immoral in character or people who are enemies of the gospel. And then you have other outsiders in the verse. You have sorcerers, you have sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. So it's not anybody who ever told a lie because that's everybody. But for those who love and practice lying, all of those people are classified as outside. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that they're second-class heavenly citizens. It doesn't mean that there's a city and really good people, people washed in the blood of the Lamb and those who keep His commandments, they're living in the city. But out there in the suburbs, you know, they're filled with these other people. And they're not quite in the city, but they're out there in the burbs, living in tin shacks. And it's these people. Well, how do I know that's the case? Well, one of the ways we know is because back in chapter 21, verse 8, those same people are referred to. And it says, The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part where? In the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone. So this is really a fearful warning. The people who are outside that heavenly city, they're not living on the edge of heaven. 
They're way out there in the dark lake of fire. They're in hell. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, and I want you to look at verses 9 to 11 there. I don't want to apply this to us. 1 Corinthians 6. The Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived about this concept, it says. If you're here and you're one of these people, don't deceive yourself. Don't think you're going to be an exception to the rule. Because neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Same kinds of people found in Revelation 22. But here's why I want to look at this particular passage. Look at the first line to the next verse. And such were some of you. What? Yes, but you were washed. So there's hope. If you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, I'm such an immoral person. I practice lying. In fact, my life is a lie. I lie fluently. I'm a homosexual. There's some of you here, you have a mother, a sister, a father, a brother, an aunt, an uncle. They're They're practicing these sins all the time. Maybe you're sitting here and you're practicing these sins. Well, on the one hand, the Bible is saying to you, people like that are not going to make it. However, there are people who've been just like you, and they are washed. So what you need to do is simply come to the cross of Jesus Christ and call on the Lord to wash you as well. Because He will. He said, He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So He will accept you. Immoral man or woman, living a lie, He will accept you. Covetous person, He will receive you. Practicing homosexual or lesbian, he will embrace you and love you and take you to live with him forever in heaven if you will just turn your back on your sin and turn and face him and call on him to be your savior. I mean, I mean, obviously you can't continue in your sin, right? But there is hope if you'll just come to the cross. And if you look at verse sixteen. The Lord would now further identify Himself with some very encouraging terms to offset the fearfulness of the previous warning. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. So all of this is given to people like us. But why does He say that in this particular context? Well, I want you to know that this is the only time in the book when he calls himself Jesus. The first chapter refers to him as Jesus. This is the first time he calls himself Jesus. So think about that for just a moment. Where did that name come from? Well, when the angel came to his adopted father, he said to him, name this baby Jesus. And the reason was because he himself will save, 
So call him Jesus. What does that name mean? Well, the shorthand answer is that Jesus means Savior, but the full answer is that it means Jehovah saves. So think back to those titles in verse 13. I'm Alpha, I'm Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, and the last. All right, those are all titles for deity. Now that same person comes back and says, yes, I am deity, but I am the Jehovah who saves. And I sent my angel to give you these promises and to tell you about that blessing and to issue to you that warning. In other words, it's Jesus the Savior with that character that He issues that blessing and that He issues that warning to all of us. It's in His nature as the God who saves who can bring blessing and who offers salvation from that warning. Then he continues with his identification when he says this, I am the root and the offspring, the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Now all of that is messianic. The Messiah is David's descendant. The bright morning star is rooted back in Numbers 24 when Balaam gave his prophecy and he said, a star will rise or come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall arise from Israel. In other words, a kingly individual is going to arise. He's going to be the offspring of David. This is all messianic language. So here he is identifying himself here, not just as Jehovah God, but as the God who saves and the promised Messiah. And you may know this, but the most often used combination for him in the New Testament is Jesus Christ, which means Jesus the Messiah. It's Jesus Christ who was born. It's Jesus Christ who died. It was Jesus Christ who rose from the dead for our justification. It was Jesus Christ who went back to the Father's right hand and sat down. It's Jesus Christ who ever lives to make intercession for us. And it will be Jesus Christ who returns for us bringing His rewards with Him and offering either a blessing or a warning depending on how we accepted His person and His claims over our lives. In His last words, He identifies Himself to us in exactly those terms. And what a comfort to know that He's not just a God who judges, He is a God who saves. Now go to verse 17. In that context of who Jesus is and what He promises, He now issues this invitation. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Now, Given the context of that last statement, you might think that the Spirit and the Bride are speaking to the unsaved, right? They might be. But it might also be true that those first two calls to come are really the Spirit of God and the Bride of Jesus in the first come, and then every single individual who hears the message of this book in the second come, they are turning to Christ 
and they're crying out in the words of Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians, Maranatha, our Lord, come. It could be that the Spirit and the Bride and all who hear are calling on Jesus to come. All right, you get that? Now, it's not strange for the Spirit of God to speak to another member of the Trinity like that. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus intercedes for us with God the Father. So it's not strange to think of the Spirit in our heart, as well as the church, prompting us and teaching us to look up in light of these last words and to make an appeal for the Lord to come as He said He would and to come quickly. It's not unusual. But then the third invitation is clearly to the unsaved when it says, and let him who thirsts come. Come to whom? Come to this one. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Everyone who is thirsty can come. Are you thirsty today? Are you dry? Are you just filled with self-loathing from all that you've attempted to satisfy yourself with? Well, you're invited. Your name is on the invitation. You can come. As Isaiah 55, 1 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, got no resource, come, buy and eat. Yes, come by wine and milk without money and without price. You can come. It's a marvelous thing. I love the way this is described just so simply in terms of your thirst. It doesn't say, let the elect come. Now, there's such a thing as election. Don't get me wrong. And hyper-Calvinists are people who don't believe in issuing a universal invitation to all of the thirsty to come. In fact, when C.H. Spurgeon went to London and he first began to preach, he had a terrible time with hyper-Calvinists because he would get up and then issue a universal invitation for everybody to come. And hyper-Calvinists would say, well, they can't come. They're not elect. And that's wrong to do that. And Spurgeon had to deal with that kind of criticism in his early years. But he knew Scripture. And the fact that, yes, we are the elect. However, we are also commanded to issue a call to everybody and to say, whosoever will may come. I mean, come on. Are you thirsty? Come. And welcome to salvation. That's what we got to do. One of the most powerful Presbyterian preachers in America from the 19th century was Samuel Palmer. In his day, he was one of the most well-known gospel preachers in America, but he was also a good pastor. And on one occasion, he had a man come into his study, and he, he said to him, look, I'm, I, I'm bound, I'm shackled. I, I cannot get loose. He said, there's nothing I can do. I'm an alcoholic. All I can do is drink and be damned. And Thomas said to him, you know, you don't understand. There is such a thing as salvation. And Jesus Christ is the Savior. And you can come. And what you need to do is come and come as a drunkard. Just go ahead and come as a drunk. And that's right. 
Let the drunkard come. Let the immoral come. Let the homosexual come. Let the murderer come. Let the drug addict come. Come as an alcoholic. Come as a liar. Come draped in your sins, but just come. Are you thirsty? Come on, salvation is yours. The Lord Jesus will not cast you out. But my friend, He will cleanse you in His precious blood. And He will take away those sins forever. Praise God, let's pray. Our Father, we thank You so much for the message of salvation. And it's offered to all who are thirsty. Father, we don't ever want to assume that everybody listening is a Christian. Some may be pretending. Some may be covered in sins of which they're unwilling to repent. Father, it is your blood, your precious blood of the Lord Jesus that saves us. We pray that as the call is issued out from your very word, that people would respond and they would be free from their sins. Father, bless those of us who know you, those of us who are Christians. Lord, may we just bask in the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven. May we live every day expecting the soon return of the Lord Jesus. Oh Lord, come, come quickly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.